Before starting this episode, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the University of New England sits today. And I would also like to pay my respects to elders past and present. Hello there, fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to a special series of the Nice Chats podcast from the Geology Podcast Network with Loon. I am Dr. B and in each of these episodes I will interview one of three researchers from Loon. And we will share with you a little bit of our knowledge and expertise in research of geosciences. Each of our episodes has a central theme and since us, the Loon folks, will walk you through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we will be talking about. As long as you are passionate about the study of geosciences, we will take care of feeding you all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. Today we start a very special series of episodes in partnership with the Lito Lab of the University of New England, or Loon for short. We will begin this very special trio of episodes by chatting with Dr. Luke Milan about ophiolites, you know whose favorite sequence of rocks. From our pool of researchers, Luke is the one that has been at Loon for longer, so he'll give us a nice overview of what they do and what makes them so special. Invite him inside, warm tail, where are your Yes, my lord. Welcome, Luke. Thanks for chatting with us today. G'day, g'day. How are you going? Good, good. Uh, I'm also joined by my co-host and spouse, Dr. Silvia Volante, and she's going to help me with the logistics of the games that we are playing later. Hey, Silvia, say hi. Hi, hi, everyone. How's it going? <laughs> so, Luke, um, your last name, is it Milan? Correct. Yes, it is. Like the city. Yes, that's we we don't actually know. I've done a bit of digging, and it's sort of I ended up in England um, mainly, where the Milan name came from. But um, yeah, I, I often just say Northern Italy. I don't actually know. Right. <laughs> that's where I'm from. There you go. Is so? Do they drop the O? <laughs> like is like? Wouldn't it be Milano? That's what I, I don't know. Yeah, that's just the English version of Milano. Yeah, we've it's been anglicized somewhere along the way. <laughs> um, so, where are you from originally? Well, I grew up in Sydney and spent most of my life there. Um, I, I moved around a little bit when I was working in the minerals industry. Um, I lived in Latin America for a short period and things like that. But oh, yeah, really? where? Um, in Chile, um, lived in La Serena, oh, cool. yeah, and that was in exploration, looking for copper and gold and stuff like that. But yeah, now I've been in Armadale for about seven or eight years. Yeah, yeah, no, Chile, Chile's awesome. Argentina's pretty cool too. You know, it's a great place to travel and visit, and the rocks are amazing. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's lovely. I mean, Santiago is uh, is also you know the capital is full of cool geological locations within the city itself has all the how do they call like the the hills you know they have a name for it in um, in spanish and uh, 
One of them is actually a bunch of uh, joint columnar basalts. Okay. It's so cool. Yeah, right. Yeah, I haven't... So cool. Oh, are those hills in the town? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I've I've seen them. Yeah, I hadn't actually... I didn't actually know that. I know the hills you're talking yeah. about in Santiago, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty cool. They're pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, you mentioned that you've been in Armadale for seven or eight years uh, at UNE. Yeah, yeah, mostly through UNE. So, I came from industry... Um, into this position um so I, I didn't follow a normal traverse that most researchers would have done but yeah so it was a bit of a bit of an adjustment for me coming out of industry back into academia again and um yeah so i've been here as an academic since then yeah We're going to kick things off today with a game between all of the participants of our special series and uh, all of them researchers from Loon. This is our first time having a triad of participants in one of our games, so let's see how it works and hopefully it won't get too messy. <laughs> Joining our interviewee, we have Dr. Marisa Batts and Dr. Tim Chapman. Um, thanks for joining in, guys. Cheers, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> So today we'll play a fan favorite and a game that we ever only played once before. This game is called Time for Questions. If you listeners have ever been to a conference, you will know that oftentimes there are a few minutes after each presentation where the public is allowed to ask questions to the presenter. And more often than we care to admit, there's always someone that doesn't agree with your study or just really doesn't really like you. <laughs> and, you ha and, and that person will have nothing but bad things to say about your work. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, that someone will shoot their hands up in the air and say, um, this is more of a comment than a question. <laughs> and then follow that by the most rude and negative way they can think of to point out to everyone just how wrong your observations are. <laughs> so this is the way the game works. I'm going to read a statement and there is going to be something wrong with this statement. Okay? Your job is to correct me by pointing out what is wrong. And in order to do that, you need to precede your answer by the phrase this is more of a comment than a question. Otherwise, you don't get the point. So, you ready? Okay. We are ready. Let's do it. <laughs> so, first question, uh, first statement. Many interpretations of geological phenomena in the past rely on the fact that the laws of physics that govern those processes are the same as right now. This was summarized elegantly by Charles Lyell in his book Principles of Geology in 1930, when he said that the past is the key to the present. Okay, Marisa. This is more of a comment than a question, but I've, I think you'll find that you've uh, misquoted Lyle there. Uh, it's actually the present is the key to the past, I think you'll find. Boom, boom, good catch. Point to <laughs> Marisa, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see if you guys get lucky on the next one. All right. Uranium-238, 
the isotope of uranium that is commonly utilized in a nuclear power plant is rare, even in uranium oxide deposits, and therefore needs to be enriched before being used to generate energy. More of a comment than a question. Um, isn't it U235 is more commonly utilized in that one? Perfect! That's exactly right! It's not uranium-238, it's uranium-235! Uranium-238 is the most common um, uranium isotope, not, not, to, to, not to rare at all, you know? Uh, in fact, um, uranium-235 in geological samples sometimes is so low that in ICPMS uh, or in laser ablation, you actually can't really measure it. So you calculate it from the other, the abundance of other isotopes, which is uh, pretty interesting, I think. Do I, Luke? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, so it's uh, Marisa and Luke tied at one point and Tim's got to step up to the plate. Huh? <laughs> All right, so next statement is, if during an earthquake, the upper block or hanging wall slides upward relative to the lower block or foot wall, we call that a normal fault. Tim. All right, Tim, come on, give this it to a, me. <laughs> this is more of a comment than a question, but that would actually be a, a reverse fault. Beep, 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 man. A hundred percent success rate so far. So that's exactly right. If the, if the upper block slides upward relative to the lower block, we call that a reverse or trust fault. Now, I would have also accepted if you said that the upper block slides downward relative to the lower block, and that is a normal fault. So, great job, we're all tied up. <laughs> Let's see who takes this one home. <laughs> oh, this one is a, is a tricky one. This is going to be hard. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the Giant's Causeway is an immense area in Northern Ireland where beautiful columnar basalts uh, were thought to be remnants of a causeway built by a troll. We now know that these columnar basalts are formed by the cooling and contraction of lava, ash or magma. Wow. Okay, look, let's see. This is a comment, uh, more of a comment than a question, but um, the columnar structures are formed by the cooling of a magma, not a lava or an ash, but that's not really the question you're asking. Like, you can get them in ash, can't you? Is it about the troll? Yeah. Oh, did I miss the troll bit? <laughs> <laughs> so, Marisa, do you want to try to answer that one? I was going to say I, I was going to say something similar to, to my comment. Um, more of a, a more of a comment than a question was about the uh, the cooling and contraction of basaltic lava. <laughs> uh, in my defense, I am just a humble paleontologist. Um, I feel like this one's on the boys. I have to say. <laughs> It's actually a gnome, not a troll. Yeah, is it a giant, <laughs> not a gnome, not a troll? So, you guys are in the right 
uh, train of oh, thought. Oh, it's a giant. The gi ah, it's, it's a giant, exactly. <laughs> that is it. Yeah, it's Finn the giant, guys. Come on, it's not a troll. <laughs> this is in Scandinavia. Oh, wow. There are no trolls in Ireland. Come on. That was a battle. That was a real battle. Uh, however, nobody mm. gets the point because when you answered oh. that it was a giant, you didn't say Damn. that it was more of a common oh. question. So this one goes to okay. no one. We're all tied up. And we have one more question to decide who the winner yeah, is. Yeah, that was rubbish from start to finish. <laughs> a dessert. Oh, sorry. Uh, um, oh. A desert is a barren area of landscape where little precipitation occurs and, consequently, living conditions are hostile for plant and animal life. As for example, the Sahara Desert, the largest desert in the world. Marisa here. Marisa raised her hand up. Let's hear it. Oh, well, this is more of a comment than a question. But I think you'll find that um, Antarctica is the largest desert in the world, not the Sahara. Me, 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 me. Spot on. <laughs> yeah, in fact, the Sahara is the third <laughs> largest desert in the world. So I would have accepted also if you said that the Sahara is the third largest desert. Uh, but you're also right because, yeah, Antarctica is the largest and then is the Arctic desert. And then mm -hmm. finally, the Sahara. People, people never think about you know uh, the polar caps as a, as a, as a desert, but as you deserts, can't right? get yeah, any yeah. water to uh, to drink. So yeah, that's it. Marisa is our winner for today. Congratulations! Woo! You get nothing. Eat it, guys. Yeah, well, you get no. You get bragging <laughs> rights, actually. <laughs> <laughs> What a smooth transition. I bet you couldn't even tell that we actually recorded those two pieces in separate days. Go check out Loon's website and social media pages that we have added to the show notes. Uh, and if you're thinking of studying geology, go have a look at the resources from UNE and keep listening to these special episodes to find out more about the opportunities and cool advantages of Loon and New England. If you have ideas for future episodes or guests, please write to our email, nicechats at gmail.com. Uh, please subscribe to Nice Chats and give us a five-star review. Also, we're doing a giveaway to celebrate this series. In order to win, you need to correctly identify which one of these samples is a serpentinite. Now, that information won't be in the post, so you need to have listened to this episode to know which rock you need to identify. But all the other rules that need to be followed uh, are in the post. So just go to my Instagram at geodoctorb or go to the Traveling Geologist or Loon's Instagram and you can find uh, all the necessary requirements for you to win this prize. And in order to help you to identify the serpentinite, keep listening to this episode and uh, take tips from Luke. Let's get to it.
right, let's talk about a few lights then. Yeah. Uh, first question is, what are ophiolites? Good question. So yeah, ophiolites, like I remember, I guess, them talking about it in my undergraduate, like they're not common rocks, they're not easy to see, but what is a, in a nutshell, an ophiolite is essentially a, a, a thrusted package of oceanic crust that's actually been thrusted up onto the continent. Um, and, you know, they're, they're typically found in, you know, continental margins because that's a great place to find a lot of tectonic activity that can do these types of things. But, yeah, essentially it's a, it's a, it's a fragment or a flake of oceanic crust that is now not on the ocean but is on a continent and you can stand on it mm-hmm. and look at it. <laughs> um, so, you know, they're typically ultra-mafic mafic, um, and, you know, sometimes they have sedimentary sequences in them um, and some rare felsic rocks. And you can, you know, they're, they're, they're really important because, you know, it's quite a hostile place, the bottom of the ocean. It's very difficult to get to the oceanic crust. You need a ship, you need dredging or you need a drill ship. And, you know, so it's, they're quite hard to get to down there. So when you have an example on Earth, you can stand on. It's much easier and, um, you know, they're good to study. And I guess, you know, the other interesting thing about ophiolites is if you if you think about the oceanic crust, it's constantly being, with tectonics, it's constantly being recycled. And, you know, some of the oldest pieces of oceanic crust today are about 170 million years old. But, you know, we have ophiolites that go well past that record. So, uh, Do you know why ophiolites have this name? Yeah, so, you know, it's a, it's a funny name, Ophiolite, if you break it down, uh, you know, Ophio is, is, means snake mm-hmm. and light means rock. So it's essentially Ophiolite, the term implies snake rock, which might seem quite strange. But if you've ever been to an Ophiolite, you would know what this snake rock is and it's essentially serpentinite. So and a ubiquitous thing with Ophiolites is mantle rocks that have been turned into serpentinite and um, they have a very smooth to the touch feel mm-hmm. and hence hence this name um, you know snake rock or ophiolite what exactly is is serpentinite it's it's a basically a rock that formed due to the hydration of olivine rich rocks which you find in ophiolites and so they break down to form um, the serpentine group minerals. The, the, the common ones would be chrysotile, lizardite, antigorite, things like that. Um, and, and also they produce magnetite. You know, it's, you, you turn a peridotite into a serpentinite and, you know, there's a massive volume change. So, you know, the, the, the volume increase is like up to 30 or 40%. And, you know, there's a dramatic drop in the density in related to that. So you go from a peridotite, which is, you know, predominantly olivine, and it's got a density of 3.3 grams per cubic centimetre, but, you know, with a serpentinite, it's really light and buoyant, and it's it's about 2.6 grams per cubic centimetre. And so serpentinites are actually important in, you know, globally there's this link with serpentinites and blue schists and eclogites and things like that as well. 
And that sort of links with Tim stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's what I was gonna say. We're gonna talk with Tim about that in a in a future episode. So that's nice. Uh, in what kind of tectonic context can we find ophiolites? Yeah. So ophiolites can occur in in a couple of different settings, but you know most commonly um, they are subduction related, um, and so they're often you might hear about them being referred to as suprasubduction zone ophiolites um you know and what what does a suprasubduction zone mean so it's basically occurring or being found uh, in the upper plate above a subduction zone um and so a common place to find them is you know in the fore arc above a subduction zone or in the back arc where we have rapid extension and then, you know, things change and they get abducted onto a, onto continental material, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's one. There are also things like mid-ocean ridge types. Um, you know, down in our neck of the woods, there's, you know, examples. There's an example of that, like the Macquarie Ridge. It's actually... Um, on the plate boundary in between the Australian and the Pacific plate, there's a transcurrent boundary there and there's a bit of transpression and, and it's actually lifting up the ocean floor to above sea level to form Macquarie Island. Um, so that's, mm -hmm. you know, another example. Um, yeah, there's continental margin types and there's also, you know, other ones related to plumes. Yeah, I imagine something has to you know, drive them upwards, right? So that they can sit That's right. at the surface. Yes. Yep. And um, what, uh, what is necessary for us to decide that a certain, you know, oceanic rock or a sequence of rocks or maybe, you know, rocks with um, geochemical signature of oceanic rock actually represents an ophiolite? Yeah, so, you know, good question. You know, these, you know, like I, I sort of like to make sure I look at things in their field context. So I guess if you have the opportunity to do field work, which is always the fun bit of geology, right? Um, I guess, you know, having a look at what the rocks are trying to tell you. So, you know, field relationships, Typically, ophiolites, as we said earlier, are thrusted onto continents. So you should be looking for, you know, a thrusted contact. You know, quite often these have serpentinite in them. And then, you know, you're looking at the typical oceanic crust sequence. So you might actually see sequences um, within that ophiolite package, such as, you know, um, you know, Harzbergites perhaps, you know, more um, differentiated rocks like dunites, whirlites, peroxonites, and chromatites. These are really unusual rocks to find. And if, if you find those, you, you probably likely are looking at an ophiolite. Then moving up in a sequence, we're sort of, we're starting at the base of a oceanic crust. You know, you might have cumulate gabbros. Above that, you know, more massive gabbros, which would have been the magma chamber. And then you would, above that, you would expect to find sheeted dike sequences, um, you know, more volcanic, on the volcanic end of things, and then actually eruptive things like pillow basalts, and then perhaps cherts or some sort of ocean sediments. 
And so if you have a sequence like that, yeah, you clearly are looking at um, oceanic uh, crust and ophiolite, but not always you, do you get such beautiful, you know, sequences. They're, you know, they're very, they're in areas that I would refer to as munted. They've been thrusted onto a continent. So things are all over the place that can be quite chaotic. So you might not see all those in a lovely sequence. You might see bits and pieces of them. And that, that's in the field. But then back in the lab, you were expecting to look for things like, you know, morb-like rocks or back up basin-like rocks in their geochemistry, um, you know. And, you know, you would also, if, if you did some isotopic studies, you would be looking for mantle-like isotope values and things like that. So, you know, sort of from the field to the lab, that's what you'd be looking for mm -hmm. they they're in the field they're often quite stark you know you're onto something really strange they have weird vegetation anomalies because they you know they've got such an unusual composition that the vegetation is really weird like out here we have these crazy grass trees growing on them and you know these funny flowers that don't occur anywhere else and not much grows on them and it's you know probably because you know, there's got a lot of nickel and things like that that plants don't like, which are actually phytotoxins. So, yeah. You know, particularly on the on the ultramafic sections that I've worked on, plants don't like it. Yeah. Great outcrop, though. <laughs> yeah. Good photos. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned also pillow, pillow lavas. And, yeah. Um, They're awesome. Are one of my favorite uh, textures in, in rocks, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, like people at home, I always like showing my first years, I always show them videos of pillow lavas on YouTube. So if you haven't seen a pillow lava eruption, Google that up, pillow lava eruptions, and have a look at how these pillows form. They're pretty amazing. Yeah, so what are some of the most famous ophiolites in the world? You mentioned um, Macquarie Ridge, right? Yeah, Macquarie Island. Yeah, Macquarie Island, sorry. Yeah, Macquarie Island in the sub-Antarctic. That's probably a lesser known one. Um, you know, I know it because I know people have been there and, you know, I wanted to go there, but it's in our neck of the woods. But, you know, the one, you know, the, the classic one that I've read about and dreamt about seeing would be in Amman. You know, it's just, it's a huge sequence. It's got excellent exposure. Um, you know, it's just full exposure, you know, from the top to the bottom, apparently. And, like, you know, everything you read about it just sounds, like, absolutely amazing. Closer to me, I guess there's the Dun Mountain Ophiolite that, that swings its way through New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, it's early Permian, that one. Um, and New Caledonia is also one of the biggest ones in the world, and that's just just over the in our neck of the woods in the Pacific. It's huge. It's you know half the island is an Ophiolite there. It's like 500 k's long or something. Wow. It's also very important for the island um, in terms of um, nickel. You know, it's about this, you know, it's got a significant proportion of the world's nickel comes from New Caledonia. In Oman, what I like about Oman is that you actually have the, the, boundary, the boundary between the mantle and the crust, right? The moho. Yeah, yeah. It's, you can stand on it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very cool because, I mean, it's something that is right now in unimaginable depths. You could never yeah. get to such depth, and uh, you can actually see it represent, you know, represented in the surface because it was uplifted during this uh, ophiolite emplacement, let's say. 
But uh, that's not always the case, is it? You can't always see the mental material as part of the Ophiolite sequence. Yeah, it's not always possible. You don't always see full sequences. So, you know, Ophiolites don't always have every part of, of the oceanic crust. No, that's right. Um, so what about Ophiolites in Europe, Sylvie? Um, we have, uh, well, not well-preserved, maybe as Oman. <laughs> Oman, but um, yeah. we have uh, piece and, uh, bits and pieces scattered throughout the Variscan, uh, the Urchinian origin in Europe. Um, yeah. And then we have, well, the Alpine ones. Uh, they're pretty amazing. I think I, I have seen not uh, all the best places, but some of it, of them. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've went to Serbia and I was driving someone was driving me through Serbia and yeah, I was like looking out the window and I was like, that's, that's Serpentinite. <laughs> I was like, an hour later, it's like, we're still in Serpentinite. Mm. Yeah. Massive ophiolites all through there. Yeah. That's good. That's um, what about there in uh, New England where Loon is located? Do you have some examples of ophiolite? Yeah. So we have what's called the great serpentinite belt and it does have some ophiolytic material in it um you know so there are pieces that are preserved they're quite rare um you know to get you know coherent pieces of ophiolite but there are a few rare examples that are small that are actually quite poorly studied but yes we do have one um a couple of pieces that are pretty close to us and then there's this belt of serpentinite which is Related, but yeah, it's mostly serpentinite, um, so it's a bit difficult to um, see anything other than schisto serpentinite, to be honest. Yeah, which is probably why a lot of people have sort of gone, well, it's just schisto serpentinite, we'll just move on and study something else, I think. Right, yeah. but but not you guys, right? Because as far as I understand, you have a project to study the serpentinite belt. That's right, yeah, so um, yeah. We've looked, we've realized that there's actually a really unique piece of coherent ophiolite there. And so we're, we're working on that. I've already sort of done a, um, a sort of an early paper on that, just establishing the age of it. Mm -hmm. um, and we're yet to really sink our teeth into that. But um, I've hopefully got a PhD start, a student starting this year who will look at that um, and, you know, hopefully get some more students onto it. I've got a bunch of samples. I'm sort of sweating on some data, got some more, sam uh, some, some more samples to be processed. And so, yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And it's just, you know, two hours down the road. So. Oh, that's great. It, man. It, I'd rather I'd rather I could go to Oman to be honest. But two hours down the road, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I used to do that for my masters. You know, my masters area was about two hours away from where I lived. So all the time, I'd be like, "Was was that kind of rock? You know, like I couldn't remember the outcrop exactly. So I was like, "Hmm, was that fold dipping east or west? Okay, just a sec. Take the car, two hours, measure it, come back. <laughs> it wasn't always the best yes. idea. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, it is very convenient. You know, I can duck out there for a day if I want to. Yeah. Um, you know, I've camped out there, but, you know, it's very convenient to us. Yeah, which is the right. cool thing about, you know, being in a university so close and surrounded by very cool geological stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I did my university in, um, degree in Sydney, my undergraduate, and um, you'd have to drive for three hours just to get out of sandstone, you know. Mm. Like, um, so we are lucky here. It's very diverse and great geology. So, yeah. And you reckon you'll be looking for some more students in the near future or do you think your team is ready? Definitely. Um, we've, we've got, you know, a lot of projects, not just from me, but, you know, Tim and Marissa, um, we've all got these ideas and, and, you know, we all have to teach and do, and do other things and we just don't have the time and they're all easy to do projects that are locally, um, you know, some in their, their wide variety. So yeah, we've definitely got plenty of projects for honors or PhD students. Yeah. So If you're hearing this, reach out. <laughs> Do you have a lot of uh, students from UNE come through to do, you know, go on to do honors and PhDs and things like that? Or We, we get a handful to do honors, um, you know, and then typically they go off and work in industry in our uni. That's the common thing that we get a lot of interest from. Um, at the moment, I'm getting phone calls all the time trying to get students jobs in in exploration and mining and things like that so sometimes it's a bit hard to keep them um but yeah so you know there's a bit of a battle to try and keep them to stay on for honors we try and encourage them because it does you know doing an honors degree does put you in good stead for further further work or if you wanted to do a phd down the track but yeah Yeah. What a terrible situation to be mm. in as a student. You know, I have to decide if I'm going to get a job yeah. or if I'm going to get yeah. a PhD, yeah. you know, and, and, and yeah. instead of having to decide if I even have a job. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy at the moment. It doesn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it, but they are desperate for, for geologists at the moment. Um, and, you know, this guy told me what they were going to get as their first role. And I figured it out and it was six, you know, six figures. It was over a hundred thousand dollars for for a graduate role with no honors straight out of an undergraduate. And I was just like, this is just mental. And they're just ringing every week. Why can't I leave students? Australia? I'm questioning all of my decisions right now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm mostly attracted by the exploration side of the industry. Yeah. And uh, what I like about it is that it's just like, Well, it's slightly different, but it's very similar to just research. And I, I think, I really believe that all geoscientists are researchers, you know, yeah. uh, all geologists as well included. Because, yeah, that's the thing. It's not a job where you're just, even if you're just describing core, you're still interpreting things. That's right. you know? It's not like just a, a monotonous, uh, laborious work. It's always, it always has that backbone of... 100% of this of description and ex exploration is cool because you don't know what you find like I've been on projects where we were looking for one type of deposit and we found something completely different you know and and other times we just don't even know what we found it was such a you know you know you just you are literally exploring new areas so you know there are there is there is some fun to be had yeah yeah that's very cool All right, so also, you know, in preparation for this series, I, I did a little digging on Twitter. Yep. And I saw that in the Loon profile, 
um, which obviously, you know, we'll put a link to in the show notes so that people can access. Uh, you say that you are the overlapping bit in the Venn diagram between geology and paleontology. So for the listeners that have to go and Google what a Venn diagram is, I'll just remind you real quick. It is one of those graphs that have two circles that overlap and the overlapping bit between the two of them has the shape of a footy football. So my first question is, are you a fan of footy? And if so, what team do you support? Um, at the risk of being ostracized by most Australians, I'm not really a, a footy um, follower, but I, mm -hmm. I can sit down and watch a match. That's it. More seriously now, can you explain to us briefly what is paleontology, what is geology, and what would the intersection between the two look like? Yes. So I guess geology is trying to understand how the earth works, trying to understand processes that occur through interpreting things in rocks. Um, and paleontology is, is more to do with the, the fossil record and, and how things evolve um, and, and sort of pondering questions like that. Where the two, like, you know, yes, it was a, it was an, a, a, we're trying to sort of show that we're a diverse group and, and sort of one of the, you know, that was sort of Marissa that came up with that Venn diagram thing. We all thought it was pretty cool. So, um, basically what, what we're trying to say is that, you know, yeah, we all work on our own problems as well, but, you know, being such a diverse group, we can, you know, there's, there's lots of amazing crossover that you'd never get if you didn't work with someone in a completely different discipline. And there's been multiple instances where sort of we've contributed to each other's research and, and had new ideas by talking to someone who's coming from a, a, a completely different background, you know. So, you know, Marissa's, you know, you know familiar with stratigraphy and evolution of, of um, you know, fossils and things and, and you know, is a good, you know, knows what she's doing with carbonate rocks. Whereas, you know, Tim sort of looks at, you know, he's a petrologist and he looks at lots of interesting rocks. And then me sort of, I sort of wander around looking at big tectonic things at the moment. But, and between, between us, yeah, we sort of, you know, we seem to be able to come up with ideas and, and finding links. And so, um, you know, I guess, you know, that's, that's the benefit of having a multifaceted team, you know. Yeah, loyal listeners of this show will know this, that one of my favorite topics is multidisciplinary and, I mean, multidisciplinarity and collaboration, uh, which from your description are two things that are very important for Loon. So my question is, how do you promote those values to, how do you reach out to researchers of other disciplines and seek opportunities to collaborate? Yeah, so I guess, you know, from my perspective, research isn't always, you know, it's not exactly easy if you just sort of stick to your own, to yourself and you don't reach out, you know. Um, it's it's also more fun sometimes to, to ask someone else about your problem. So, you know, again, like, you know, having people with different skills around you is important and widens your horizon of possibilities that you may never have had uh, opportunities to look at any other way 
um, you know, because someone might come to you with a really cool idea and, you know, you might be able to go down that rabbit hole with them, you know, that you might never have had. And so for myself in terms of reaching out, you know, I always just like to talk to people face to face, but it's not, you know, so just go, hey, look, I, I know about you, I've read about you and I've got this idea, you know, and you will find that people that study geology or researchers um, are really passionate. So if you ask them about something that they're really passionate, they're going to, they're going to get excited and go, Oh, that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that. So, you know, I guess, and I, particularly in COVID, it's not always easy to reach out to people face to face, but you know, a simple email sometimes can work or picking up the phone and just going, Hey, you know, this is what I know what you're about. This is what I'm about. Here's a, here's an idea. Should we, should we talk? So, yeah, things like that. Yeah. Part, part of the reason why I started this podcast was that, so I would have an excuse to contact people that I admire and I, you know, always nice. wanted to talk to. Yeah, them. for sure. Yeah. And this is, this is actually a big issue I see, especially in students. Yep. Is that you don't realize that you can just reach out to people and you know ask for help or you know present opportunities 100%. to work together. Me, me, when I was on my PhD, I was I was so much inside of my shell, you know. And then once I start towards the end, once I started collaborating with people outside of like the main thing of my PhD, that's when I realized, man, so many times you just email someone and the positive, you know, the answer is so positive and so helpful. That's right. Not everyone realizes that. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's intimidating. So you read these papers and you go, wow, you know, this person is, you know, a, a legend. Um, you know, what am I, you, you, yeah. your self doubt or something. Can you go, why, why would I reach out? And so, yeah, I see it a lot in students as well. So, but, like I said, we're all passionate researchers and you'll probably find that that person will get excited if you are and, you know, if they find out that you're, you're interested in their work and you've got an idea about something that they're interested in, they will be interested. So you got to be in it to win it sort of thing. Yeah, yeah and me particularly, um, even if you're not coming with an opportunity but you actually, you're just coming up with a question, for example... I love answering questions like I love to see when people are interested in what I have to say and I love this feeling of being heard as well you know I don't know it and, and I get this very like big satisfaction from seeing the face of the person well over email maybe you're not going to be able to do that but seeing the face of the person illuminate when they finally yeah. understand yeah. what you mean yeah you know like yeah um, what are in your opinion the main strengths of Loon compared to other research groups? You know, well, you know, we are small and we're just trying to get, you know, gather momentum. Um, and, but I guess our strength is because we are small, um, you know, we all have good relationships and it's a tight knit community. And so we all help each other out and, you know, we give our students a hell of a lot of time of our time and we enjoy doing that. And so I guess because we're a small team, we all know each other and you're not just another number in a lab or anything like that. So I guess that's probably um, one of our, our strengths. The other strength is that because we're so multifaceted, you know, we do have a, a large, unusually large depth of sort of, um, you know, sort of research knowledge there. 
Um, and, you know, and that sort of exposes us to things that, you know, it might expose you to things that you haven't thought about. Um, and, you know, yeah. It is good, yeah. I, I definitely think um, having, you know, a nurturing environment speaks volume to the quality of the research that is going to come out of it. Obviously, you need great people and you need opportunities, but um, having the right setup you know, as far as like personal relationships and support is uh, just as important. Right, so for our next segment, uh, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. And in this special Loon series is no different. The, uh, these are questions that are a bit more personal. Uh, they are designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener. And they also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. And the first question is, how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? Yeah, interesting. Um, my mum obviously took some geology in her undergraduate degree. And so when I was a young kid, we we're always going out into country holidays and places like that. And I was always interested in the outdoors and I would ask her about rocks and she taught me about the three main rock types. And I actually remember one time we're out, there was a group of geologists turned up from America. It was a class doing some trip in, you know, in, in New South Wales. And that always interested me and just what my mum taught me, which wasn't, you know, just simple stuff. And then in my high school, I was lucky enough to have geology um, offered as a, as a subject. So one of the teachers in my high school actually had done a geology degree and he offered two years of geology. So I learned two years of geology in high school, did it as, you know, and then I went and worked um, in, a, in a random job. I didn't go straight to uni. And then after a year of that, I was like, bugger that like I'm going back to study geology <laughs> and so I went back and, and and did an undergraduate in geology so that was sort of my um, roundabout way. That's good. Um, what are some of the specifics of the research that you're conducting at present? Um, at the moment I'm particularly looking at the geochemistry like trace element and isotope geochemistry of these ophiolite rocks that I mentioned earlier. Um, I've also collected a few more rocks that I should be able to extract zircons out of. Um, and so that will help me confirm the age of those rocks that I'm looking at. So that's, that's, and I've also got a bunch of other things that I'm doing with other people. Um, <laughs> typically sort of a tectonic bent, you know, sort of arm waving about continents colliding and things like that. But mostly actually... A lot of it's framed around the New England origin. I, I feel as though there's a lot of, in this local area, to us, the New England origin, there's there's a few questions that remain unanswered. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. And what do you enjoy doing when you're not geosciencing? Well, uh, I like, I'm a bit of a cyclist and, and I like watching cycling when it's on um i like being in the outdoors um i used to surf a lot but i don't do that much surfing up here in the new england because it's about two hours from the beach 
Um, you know, I own a house, an old one. It's a, about a hundred years old, and and you can imagine it's got a hundred years of problems. So um, <laughs> it, it gets my attention sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a ghost? <laughs> no, no, not that we're aware <laughs> of. Um, so you know things like that. Um, I like to sort of be outdoors and go for hikes and go to um, – I actually have family 30Ks to the east that have a farm here. and um, So oh, I, cool, I can yeah. go out to their farm and, and, and do fun stuff like that. But, yeah. All right, cool. So, Luke, thanks so much for talking with us today. It was great learning about uh, Ophiolites from you. Thank you both for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to talking to Marisa and uh, Tim and learning a little bit more about Loon in these upcoming special episodes. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Excellent, yep. Thank you, Luke, thanks. No problem at all. Thanks. Thank you for the opportunity. I had such a great time chatting with Luke about Ophiolites and I can't wait to see all of the cool discoveries they surely will make in the near future. Nice Chats is part of the Geology Podcast Network and it is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. This special series is sponsored by the University of New England and produced in partnership with the Little Lab of UNE. Follow Traveling Geologist on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. In two weeks, we're talking about landscapes and the processes responsible for making the plat pays that Jacques Brill so beautifully sings about. If you're out doing fieldwork in Ophiolites, remember, is going to be metal. It is going to be mental. <laughs> <laughs>